Oh, failure is critical. I think failure is probably the most critical for yourself, keeping you humble, keeping your ego in check. But I mean, when we're on a good roll and things are going well and what we do turns to gold, wow, it's, it's just so easy to get to get arrogant and self-focused and think you're just the bee's knees. But um, but then you also limit yourselves and your, your innovation. So while you're humming along well, somebody else that's failing and changing, they end up leapfrogging you because you, you preferred to stay comfortable. While I love being comfortable, I also hate missing opportunities. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm joined today by Hamish Belsky. Hamish, would you just like to introduce, well firstly welcome, and please just introduce yourself for our listeners. Uh, thanks Jono. Yeah, we're down here in South Otago on 300 hectares, rolling to Sun Hill Country, Steep Hill Country. Been here eight years now, which is flowing by, and um, just to go, oh, well, here with my wife, Amy, and three children, Maddie, who's 15, Tuvia, who's 11, and Luke, who's five, just turned five, so just off to school. Um, Amy is originated from South Otago in the Catlins, Owaka, and I'm originated from Tai Happy region, Rangawahia, underneath the Ruahini Ranges, so worlds apart, really, um, if you call it a small world. And um, both of us grew up in, you know, strong farming families, both loved it, and... Um, I went across to the Hawke's Bay to a training farm there, Smedley Station, did a couple of years there, um, did some shepherding, worked my way into uh, university, um, did a diploma in farm management. Uh, that's where Amy and I met. She was doing the agricultural science degree. And um, yeah, it sort of went from there, went from there and we, Went back to the North Island, did a stint in animal recording, genetics, and then went back to the family farm. That's a, actually another story in itself, uh, where we ended up selling the family farm. And so our, so we dispersed back down to the South Island to be closer to her family. Ended up at Mount Linton for seven years, breeding the rams there. And um, always had a goal of farm ownership in some sort of way. And um, after meeting Neil and Pip Gardine in 2012, um, two years after that, we'd, we'd purchased this farm in what we call um, Tamata area, just between Clinton and Valclutha, where the Pomahaka meets the Clutha River. So it's a, it's a beautiful spot. Um, it's certainly way more challenging than I thought with, with dry, being a dry area of say 700 millimetres of rain a year. And um, two years into it, I suddenly realised how, well, we both realised how much, how hard it was to actually make a really decent profit. But 
And so we thought, how can we, um, you know, improve profitability, but also basically step off the tractor and the plow and the working of the land and the huge amount of energy, fossil energy that was going into our farm to, to you know, produce a production. And that's when we um, came across Dr. Christine Jones, which a lot of people have heard that anyway, but certainly a catalyst for it, for changing. Um, that was 2016. So yeah, what are we now? Six years on, coming up six years. And um, it's been uh, probably the most intensive educational six years of, of, our, of well, my life. And um, so much um, to, to, to share with others, I guess, and so much that I've learned um, uh, about matching expectations to reality and, and so many things. And, and also just um, dealing with, with all sorts of people along the way in terms of you meet such people who, who come on board the, the, the similar thinking and are really keen to learn. And then there are others that are scathing um, and, and very defensive. And, and I understand both. Um, it's, it's, it's very much a human nature, um, you know, things that we, we come across in life is probably more of a challenge there than, than a lot of other things. But always learning and always growing and understanding how, you know, I can be over enthusiastic at times and, and, um, and, and push something that I think is, is amazing until you've actually tried it for three or four years in a row and realize it wasn't quite so amazing. And um, yeah, so that's where we're at, at the moment. Uh, all very happy um, and ready for another decade. Vast experience there. You paint a vivid picture of the, the incredible uh, steps that you've had to take to get to where you are, and just the powerhouse that that you and Amy are, and your wonderful family. And I'd like to hear what was one of those things that you jumped on with, with all the bells on, thinking, "Oh, this is awesome," and uh, you know, bought the the full Hamish Belsky Energy Two, only to find, uh, you know, some years later, or even you know, sooner than that, less time than that wasn't, you know, like you said, one of those moments where expectations weren't met and perhaps you were left with a bit of, you know, resignation or disappointment or something of that nature. You know, in life, we all start out very enthusiastic about any new venture or um, relationship, you know, what, whatever in life, and which is good, which is what keeps us going. But I guess what I have keep learning is that you envision such wonderful results and you think, oh, well, you, you know, you see so much amazing results around the world and what people do and you think oh well that's not too hard to emulate if we just do that and focus on getting the basics right we should have similar outcomes but um it, it, it somehow never quite matches up to that expectation you have in your head and um and while that doesn't define our inward joy I guess you could say you certainly have to be aware of that to keep you in check so you because otherwise if you just 
kept going through life with these huge expectations about how it's going to look like this and it never does well no wonder we head into um you know mental downward spirals or really tough periods and i think what i've learned is regardless of circumstances um if your vision is is long term enough joy doesn't change but at, at times your happiness does and um so at times we're we're very happy and at other times um it sucks so but inwardly joy is we're still joyful we're still content about what we're doing and and, and just on that one I, I do find interesting one thing that has probably exceeded uh, my expectations um has been our marriage and and you go into marriage there's this huge stigma about marriage being you know the handbrake the um the well you got to spend the rest of your life with this one person i mean that's just crazy if you really think about it and um and i think through all the challenges that that amy and i've been through we are stronger it's more fun than ever than we had you know 20 years marriage and it's better than ever and that's one thing i didn't quite think would um would be the case but i'm um i'm stoked and um and and when you i think for us anyway when you've got a good marriage is a real foundation or a good relationship whatever is a great foundation for life because outside of your marriage or your relationship life is hard enough at the best of times than having to come home to a, a dissentful cranky relationship and family I reckon that's what keeps us going so well is um, the fact, you know, suddenly you have kids and then kids, the more kids you have, the more chance of problems or out of the blue scenarios coming up that just throw your thinking, throw your plans. And so if you're strong together, you can weather so many um, storms that are thrown at you. So I guess in farming, I guess whatever you're doing, the variables are huge. But one of the things I have learned is that marriages are not, well, good relationships, sorry, good relationships or marriages are a decision and a choice to be good, to thrive. If you just um, let it happen by chance, um, that's when things start to disintegrate. There's a line in um, U2's song One, which is one of my favorite songs, one of our songs we uh, we danced to, to on our wedding night. It says, um, love will die if you don't care for it. To me, that has been one of the biggest revelations is that it, it takes work, it takes effort, but the rewards are great. So that's probably, um, along with our faith, has been is the foundation, faith in God, faith in a creator, faith in the fact that we understand that humanity can do stupid stuff, but also humanity can be amazing. Um, humans are just such amazing beings that... On one hand, we can destroy, but on the other hand, we can build, we can regenerate, and we are so clever. We have the, we're the only only beings in the world that can actually manage, um, that we that can plan for decades, centuries out. No, I find it extraordinary. You, you really paint a great picture. Like you've had on this one hand a situation where you've had high expectations and have been left disappointment disappointed you know like regarding perhaps this image of what regenerative agriculture was or what you saw of other people doing on their farms and then you paint this other beautiful picture of having this relationship where you thought 
you know, you maybe didn't have those same expectations where you were maybe a little bit resigned in the beginning, like, oh, you know, the marriage, the, you know, the sentence or, what, you know, whatever your story is about it. And we're completely blown away with, you know, something like almost the opposite of that. So like how you, what you're painting a beautiful picture of is like expectations and comparisons are quite silly, aren't they? That's it's a really good point because when you listen to farms who've who've gone into a regenerative um, management, you you hear really positive stories. Um, you hear positive stories about a business that's thrived. Um, how often do you hear, you just hear in normal conversations positive stories about um, amazing relationships or marriages? You know, like it's just not really talked about unless you go to a designated conference about marriage or about relationships so so in our world strong relationships thriving healthy relationships very seldom do we hear a lot of stories about that I mean I don't go to a quorum sense um, field day to hear about building strong relationships but we'll go to hear about how we can improve our land and our farming and, and make that better and so always expectations are driven towards our actions in the world but very little is talked about the positive actions um, within the home and, and behind closed doors. So I think um, one of the things, probably one of the biggest misconceptions is that, you know, when you fall in love or you find the right person in quotation marks, then you should be able to spend the rest of your life together, no problem. But that's actually a myth. Um, what I realized is, yep, you've got to be compatible and get on. That's just the beginning. And so because we keep, so so one of the biggest things is I've realized is love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. So love is a choice. Love is a decision to say, right, I'm going to surrender so that I can build you up. And I think once you get into that mentality where, it's not all about me. It's actually how do I make my partner feel better, feel loved by my actions, not by my words solely. Then change starts happening in both of you and you start, both of you start building together. I don't know, I just, I listened to Dr. Jordan Peterson the other day and he said, you know, marriage or, or relationships are like a game and when you play a game in the rule within the boundaries of the rules, you both get better. You know, as an example is if you're going to play basketball, you've got to be playing basketball together. And if you do that against each other, you end up being better. Yeah, I just thought that that um, the challenging from each other, the antagonisms, that 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 grating of rough edges that that annoy you, but within that annoyance, working out how. To, to to smooth off those rough edges and and a, and a knife is never sharpened on a piece of wood it's always sharpened on another piece of steel and that's that's painful at times but the the rewards are um, far outweigh the, the notion that love is just this lovely walk off into the sunset notion it's um it's work it's it's an action and it's a decision so that that's pretty much what I want to start off with in terms of our journey with the regenerative or regenerating our land and our, our stock and our ecosystems built on a, a strong relationship. Yeah, it's too often, you know, we're used to just 
the doing things. What do I do? You know, how do I how do I fix my problems on my farm? And mm. you know, we're not we're not giving that same mentality to who we're being in all aspects of the word being, including our relationships. Because one thing you've really described beautifully, whether it was intentional or not, is that that's what we've got is relationships. And it's not just the marriage relationships, it's not just the person to person either. It's it's the other relationships all around us because yeah. we are part of everything. You talked about the rough edges. You know, you've got to be adaptive to working on those areas as well as the easy, like if we're talking farming, you know, the the rolling flats perhaps. On your farm, I know that you've got some pretty, you know, nasty fringes, should we say, some steep gullies, some rough areas. Just talk about regenerative agriculture. You know, people might have it that it's all about, you know, you can do it on the flats or maybe it's sort of to do with, um, they might have an ideology of, of what it looks like. And I know that you've got some areas that, you know, we don't often see, you know, the glorious, glorified images of. Um, what are you doing in your rough, steep areas in your faces um, that that's different to what you learnt, you know, coming up in the ranks of, of shepherding and farming in general? One thing, I, one thing I've learned is that the steeper it is or the, the harder that country is, the more you need to leave it alone in terms of regrassing or recropping or trying to improve it somehow. And um and some of the some of the paddocks or areas that we've done here that were the soil was was bonier, like on, on it has shallower topsoil on top of rock, sort of thing. And when I went and sprayed that out and tried to get some updated new fancy pasture species in there, man, did I open up a can of weeds. And you know, <coughs> thistles, whorehound, um, oh, it just drove me nuts. And I just Look back and said, wish I just never um, touched it. And, you know, I think just putting on some some lime and maybe some RPR and a few things like that and then graze it strategically at times, I think at the end of the day, you're, just, you're more profitable and, and better off doing that. Um, and the other thing is we've, we've actually just gone out and planted about 23 hectares of... Um, space poplars and now this is to do with the the ETS which I class as a complete Ponzi scheme but look if someone's going to pay us to plant trees we'll we'll take it and um and I think even if we weren't uh say the whole scheme falls over in five years or whatever and we get um repaid our thousand dollars a hectare of what it costs to put them in the value to the farm and the stock is worth well beyond that. So that that was just, I guess, learning to say, well, what can we do within the rules of the game, coming back to the rules of the game, without having to plant all our gullies out in pine trees? Because our gullies actually become really important. You know, this is the other factor which people say, oh, the steep class seven hill country, class six, it's it's worth this or we only get this many grazings a year. You know, in the snow, we put most of our, using our lambs into those gullies through the last two days. Now, what sort of value do you put on different times of the year where there's such a huge reward um, in having those, those areas on the farm? So I think in 10, 20 years time, when those poplars are just in full bloom, um, adding shade, shelter, um, 
leaf drop, which adds, you know, that I guess it's fertility, um, it, the aesthetics to the farm. I just, I'm very excited about that. And um, like I say, we've planted about 55 stems per hectare. My expectation is this, or my vision is this, this is beautiful poplars throughout these gullies and I don't know, 25% could die. You know, like I just have to be aware that, you know, if we get another dry or another drought, whatever, uh, there could be some carnage. So just have to temper my expectations there and be prepared to just replant as, as quickly as possible and not give up on that. And um, yeah, so we'll, we'll spray around the base of those poplar poles on the drier faces and, and dig up a bit of a um, patch in, in the soil so the water can flow into it. Things like that will try and prevent as many casualties as possible. But again, to have at the end of all this 20-odd um, hectares or, pro I mean, it might even be 30 hectares by the time we finish, of land that we can graze stock in plus, um, you know, increase the, the ecosystems are it's just such a win-win. It is, I mean, what is it? Silviculture, agroforestry, whatever. Beautiful thing, so, yeah. I'll come back to, because I do want to come back to the ETS conversation and your thoughts on possibilities for farmers regarding the current, I guess you would call it, the social expectations or the current imagery um, that you might see reading the paper. Come back to that. But I do want to ask, how has your grazing changed since you first started farming to what it is now? Because I really can hear, and from knowing you personally, grazing has been a huge part of your journey. What are some different things, you know, what has it changed been since the beginning in your grazing management? I understand very clearly why sheep farmers set stock for, you know, from, from lambing through to, to weaning. Because if you can keep those plants at a short state, in a vegetative state, sheep actually do really well off that. And some of the best lambs I've seen have come off that system. But I've also seen the costs that go into that system when you get um, dry periods where you're not growing any grass after Christmas or very little grass and you really hit a wall. Um, I've also seen how much more fertilizer you need because the animals keep transferring the fertilizer to the shelter belts and the, the ridges, et cetera. On one hand, what we're trying to do here is grow really good lambs, and we need really good lambs, and we need a lot of lambs off at weaning before we get dry, but also spread our fertility over the farm and grow more grass um, throughout the whole year. So going from that set stock system, which is which is quite easy and a really good recipe, to into a rotational grazing system, you know, a well-planned grazing system with big mobs of ewes and lambs has been one of the greatest challenges uh, I've gone through because you only get two months to do it right. And if you don't, you've got to wait a whole nother year. You've actually really put pressure on yourself for the, for the summer and the autumn because your lambs weren't big enough. And um, so, so within that whole mob grazing uh, system we've gone from leaving a lot more behind to now grazing lower but leaving a longer recovery so that so that we don't end up having lots of stem and and dead matter building up in the base of the pasture because sheep just hate it 
they detest it and and they they go backwards really fast as soon as they have to start eating that sort of stuff you know in a combination of listening to um, Jim Elizondo Graham Hand um, Dick Richardson and then um, others like Ian Mitchell Innes and Siobhan Griffin um John King etc Derek Moot um, David Stevens far out I mean there's so many out there that that have really helped us to, to try and get a far better understanding of how it works in our context with, with, with our sheep ratio, which is about 80%, um, with the need that we need really uh, big lambs at weaning time. Um, and so by having more leaf to stem ratio for sheep is paramount to good performance. So that, that, that's been a big learning curve. Instead of eating half or eating third and leaving the rest or um, we, we just prefer to defer a bit more and we'll trample that later on um, and let that reseed leaving our main platform in a really nice vegetative um, state which in turn grows fatter ewes and bigger lambs when to mob up um, this year I've mobbed up, well, last year I said I won't mob up until towards the end of October, let those lambs really um, grow out more and, and be really settled um, and, and eating grass before I mob up. But this year, with it being turned, it was cold at the start of September and our covers have sort of dropped and I thought, flip, we need to grow some grass because if we get dry, October, November is when we make the most make the most of that um, growth period. So I've actually mobbed up a mob of, um, oh, I don't know, 400-odd ewes with 650 lambs. And so I'm just like, oh, far out. I hope I haven't done that too early. And again, I won't, be able to, I won't know until weaning. We've got another mob, which is still spread out, so we can gauge these two mobs um, at this point. So, yeah, a lot of it is just adapting all the time, um, realising that, I sometimes struggle to see how set stock on short pastures can grow such great lambs. You know, is it the, is it the social part of it? I'm not 100% sure yet. And, you know, when we first start out, I think in my first year here, we actually had a really amazing summer autumn with good rainfall. And we just grew grass like I've never grown grass before. And the rotations worked well and the stock grew well. And so I was promoting what we were doing with that eat a third, leave a third, et cetera, trample a third. But then when we got to the winter time, there was a huge litter buildup and, and the ewes really struggled by the end of the winter to, to eat and, I guess, clean up a lot of that to reset for the spring. I think that's why you sort of got to come back to these, to these people that have tried it at the start. If you keep trying to tell yourself that this is the way to do it, but you're, the outcomes aren't there, then you're only kidding yourself and you're only putting more people into a path where they'll hit the wall as well. Yeah, and I, that's what I love about your shearing and, and how I've got so much from your shearing is like you haven't been attached to any of your practices being the one way you'll continue to do things. Like you're observing things, you're adapting to suit, which is probably, I mean, would you would you say that's been the most important factor throughout is that, ability to observe and adapt oh, 100% I mean it's all it's almost well it's humiliating to to go out thinking there's a way and realize that it's not it's like ah oh, far out so I've told quite a few people that's the way that we're doing it and now 
I'd like to get those people back and say, uh, no, that actually didn't work for us in year two or year three. You have to be so adaptable. And I think what I enjoy about the the farmers or all the people that, that change their mindset and go down the regenerating um, path is that they they've got open enough minds to do that and they've usually got open enough minds to adapt as gabe brown says you know people that have been doing this five years or more very seldom go back to how they used to do things but plenty go back in years two three four and, and i i do get that and understand why because the pressures of you know dealing with the people in your business whether it's family whether it was our equity partners um, and, and then when things don't turn out like we said they would turn out, then people lose faith in you or they they start to doubt what you're doing is the right way. And then there's conflict and, and strain on those relationships. So that's probably the biggest barrier for us, for, for people to overcome in this system. I, I give huge credit to mums and dads of, who've passed their farm on and, and, and let it go, um, but always there for wisdom and, and input. But certainly letting that next generation express themselves, go through those failures. And I often think, far out, what am I going to be like when, it, when it's our turn? And I, it, I reckon it'll be really hard because while it's, because in the end, I'm the only one that sees what I've done has worked or not worked. And I guess you could write a book. Yep. But then it, that's for what's worked for me. And so at that time. time yeah, at that time. So, so often we'll read a book and be inspired by that book, but but their context was so different. Although the principles are the same, again, it, it never quite plays out like you think it would. And I guess oh, a classic example of that is um, going down the fine wool route. I thought, well, if we could put a fine wool um, jacket on our sheep and get $10 a kilo for our wool, plus have 140, 50% lambing and good lambs, then well, that's a no-brainer. You know, we use the Dooney Merino, which is sort of a meat merino. Yeah, that's been an unmitigated disaster. So we've got some of the tutus now lambing and those sheep, the lambs are smaller. Um, they're exceptionally daggier. Like, I'm just like, wow, imagine if I had a whole farm of these sheep. Um, and, and their robustness, their their grunt is just so far behind what our crossbred sheep are. Um, it was such a big learning curve and such an eye-opener that there's such a, a chasm between our crossbreds and, and the fine wool game. And I'm not saying that's all fine wool, but yeah, good luck if you can find a fine wool sheep that can out-compete a crossbred on, um, on our sort of country. So we ended up, glaringly said to us right we need growth and milk with big lambs gone at wing is basically what sets up our business and our and our ecosystem so we ended up going to a pole dorset we thought about getting australian whites or importing other stuff thinking oh maybe that would that would work but you know often these breeds from overseas sound sexy and sound like they're going to transform everything the pole dorset has been a 30, 40 years of adapted to New Zealand conditions. Um, it's not sexy. They really suck when you're sharing them, but they deliver growth. They deliver milk production. And they're actually a very robust animal 
And so we thought if we cross that with a Romney, then we get wonderful hybrid vigor and then put that back to a, to a terminal, uh, like another pole dorset. Obviously, we, we end up buying a pole dorset stud, which was totally outside of what we thought we were ever going to do. But the two studs that we were buying the pole dorset rams off, both sold, well, both are selling. So we bought the smaller one of them. We thought, oh, well, let's keep the rams within our control, the, the breeding program. And here we are. So, I, you know, I, I never thought in a million years that we'd end up going down the pole dorset cross route. Now, again, I understand the limitations, like we're going to have bigger sheep, um, higher maintenance costs. But what I've learned, Jono, is you efficiency can be a flawed metric in the sense that we could have 60 kilo ewes rearing two 30 kilo lambs, which is an, a very, very efficient sheep. Now, two 30 kilo lambs don't go on the truck to the meatwork companies at weaning time. What we need is 36 kilo lambs, or minimum of 34 kilo lambs, and they're straight to the works. So to get that sort of weaning weight, you need milk production and you need growth rate. Even if we have a sheep that's 75 kilos, weaning an average of 35 kilos, that gets us over the mark. It gets a huge amount of, uh, amount of lambs gone at weaning time. And the other thing too, which we have to understand in our heads, when we first got here in 2014, I think we got $70 for our ewes when, uh, when they finally um, got to the end of their lives. Now we're getting $150. So another three kilos of carcass weight on our ewe is pretty much another 15 to $18. So if the majority of our lambs are gone before Christmas, and I'm talking 80% of them gone by Christmas, um, that includes some sold store, then to eat, uh, to maintain that, that bigger you is far less of an effort than ha having 80% of your lambs still on and trying to feed 80% of your lambs plus a smaller you. So anyway, that's the context which we've really been grappling with and this you efficiency thing, smaller use, more lamb wean per you um, can really throw you off in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And I can really hear as you go through, you know, you're reminding yourself of your journey and how different it's been and all the learnings. Do you think failure is almost important? Like you talked about how are you going to find it when it's time for your children to step up and, you know, knowing what you've been through and you're only, you know, you've got many years left yet. Do you think failure or your perception of that is actually something that you need to go through? Oh, failure is critical. I think failure is probably the most critical for yourself, keeping you humble, keeping your ego in check. But I mean, when we're on a good roll and things are going well and what we do turns to gold, wow, it's, it's just so easy to get to get arrogant and self-focused and think you're just the bee's knees. But um, but then you also limit yourselves and your, your innovation. So while you're humming along well, somebody else that's failing and changing, they end up leapfrogging you because you, you preferred to stay comfortable. While I love being comfortable, I also hate missing opportunities. And so... Yeah, no, I, I look forward to the failures that our children go through. 
Um, we always, always just hope those failures aren't, you, you know, for anyone, you just hope that failures aren't too big that it just, just you know, too destructive, I guess. But I think a lot of the failures in life, the big failures in life or the destructive failures in life are personal decisions. You know, like um, going through a drought or a big snowstorm or poor grazing management or um, running out of feed or things like that. You know, they're not the end of the world, but um, going up through your youth and teenage years and making some really stupid decisions can really cost, uh, you know, hamper your progress in your life. So I think there, there are two, two parts to the failure um, discussion, and we just try and bring up our kids to, to, to make good decisions. And, and my brother... Dave, I think he said it. He said it really well. He said, "So often people don't picture or go through scenarios in their head about the decisions they make." So, if you say, "Right, let's imagine," so you got to have a really good imagination. Let's imagine if I do this, these are the potential outcomes. Um, so, but if you don't picture those outcomes or those um, consequences then you will make stupid and destructive decisions so, so and I think that's what we just try and teach our kids that so you're not trying to make decisions for them you're teaching them how to make good decisions and that's a been a big learning curve as well so you're sort of speaking to it in in terms of risks and benefits when you talk about possible outcomes. So it's like a cost-benefit analysis each time you're making a choice. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know cho choices of of who we end up with in life, um, choices in how much we choose to drink, do we drive, choices on do we um do we cheat in that test um do we all those sorts of decisions which you have to play out in your head well if i do that and i get caught what are the consequences now do i go through that short-term pain but come out the other side thankful that i made that decision or do i choose the short-term pleasure and then come out the other side um with a lot of regrets and um and, and i think my nature is very much if I see something um, that looks good or makes sense, I'll go all in for it. You know, like my, my good friend and mentor, Rick Cameron, he's always saying just do small trials. Um, you know, do plenty of small trials and 30% of them will work and then scale that up, which is just fantastic advice. I struggle with that. I just see a concept or an idea and I go, right, I just want to give everything into this to make sure that uh, it's going to work at scale. Or, and um, that's when I can come unstuck. So I've got to check my enthusiasm. Amy is brilliant at checking my enthusiasm. She's far more conservative and reserved, careful, but also very calculated. Um, 
if it was her on her own, she wouldn't take the risks that I do. So she made, you know, you wouldn't be trying sorts of different ideas. But if it wasn't for her, I would be um, probably much bigger disasters on my hands than, than what could be. So again, that's that wisdom around you. Um, the relation because because I don't like it when Amy says no that's not a good idea that that um, really frustrates me but oh, I'm so grateful that she does so yeah that's <laughs> that's how we grow Donna <laughs> being open and willing to hearing criticism yeah yeah it's, it's it's harsh but it's so good for you yeah and I can hear you do that to yourself as well like it's it's continuous criticism of yourself and your own actions like that's that's huge yeah I sometimes I, I don't think I do it enough but I think as you get older you, you certainly learn to do it more and you appreciate it more because um, and, and that's why having having a, a really close um, group of friends and, and I don't mean many when you have such a wonderful group of people especially in South Otago that have been so influential and encouraging supportive oh it's it's just a pleasure to be living I guess and, and that's it's that that people side of it which keeps you sane which keeps you grounded um which keeps you growing um but like I say but when it all comes back to it our aim, aim is to have a home wherever that home is of peace and one of the Hebrew meanings of the word Eve is Eve is a helper. And there's another thing that Jordan Peterson brought up, and I thought this is fascinating. Eve means helper, but it means way, there's way more depth to that. And one of the deep meanings of Eve, you know, Adam and Eve, I haven't quite explained that probably, is um, beneficial adversary. So that picture, that woman and man together uh, push back on each other, but also grow together. And I thought that's um, what an awesome description of a wonderful relationship between a man and a woman. And, and I just uh, see that in our operation or, or, or our context here with our business, with our children, with our school, our community, it all comes back to having a strong foundation. I see that it's just so important for us to have a thriving business and a thriving farm. And, and while that's nowhere near where we want it, again, the whole financial side of farming, it's a long game and, and that's frustrating. You know, you're never making as much as what you, you should be or you, or you have to be. And your, your soils and your land's not improving as fast as what you thought it should be. Um, you know, two years of droughts and suddenly you've got thistles everywhere, which you thought you'd got on top of and thought you'd sort of nailed that problem. Um, pasture covers this spring are too short. As I said to Chris the other day, you know, we had 13 hectares of trees logged in the autumn and there were 16 fences down. We struggled to, to get our grazing management right. Um, we lost focus on that. We were planting shelter belts, replanting trees, planting poplars and gullies. I don't know if I even remember the winter. And so we get to the spring and we haven't been as clinical in executing our grazing management. So we're shorter in our covers. And I'm just like, oh, just gets um, so frustrating and, and wears you down sometimes. But 
you've just got to look back and say, this is what we've achieved. Um, I come back to a, a wonderful family um, and knowing that, right, well, the, the farm is now refenced up, it's ready to go, we'll just be better next year. Um, don't continue to beat myself up over it. And, and, and then you go through that stage of beating yourself up and then quickly get over it, have a good yarn with Amy, with her family, my family, friends, and away you go again. And, and um, you know, we went through three inches of snow yesterday, which is one of the heaviest snowfalls since we've been here. Two days of rough weather, sun's out this morning, talking to you, you know, we're back on track. So, yeah, that's a long answer for you. But doesn't it make the, uh, you know, times like this, I believe those failures, those low points only make these moments of, and maybe it is just the illusion of a high moment, or maybe it is a it is a high genuinely, but it makes it more valuable, more, I would say, potent. Yeah, I, I think um, another mate, Dave Kelly, Tussock, he said to me, um, you know, he, he struggles with, you know, he's played cricket for CD and just an awesome cricketer. He always sets really high standards and those sports people are often so high in their standards that they can be extraordinarily hard on themselves. And he said to me, like, you know, sometimes I just don't celebrate and stop and say, man, that was a great result. And, and I get that. I, I sometimes the results, it's great, but there's just always so much more to achieve. So let's not um, sit and celebrate. Let's keep moving on. We've got to charge on. But you've got to make sure that you celebrate um, those wins and look back and say, far out. What a great effort. That was huge. Uh, um, like, you know, I had Amy's uncle with me, Uncle Rog, you know, I think he's 66 and he was, I was drilling post hole boring, 40 inch holes, 1100 poplars. And, um, that was a, that was hard work. I talk about a sweat, you know, I reckon I've got abs now and, and he's 66 driving these, um, poplars in with a, sort of a like, like a Waratah rammer, but it's bigger, it's heavier. And I just look at him and think, man, you're just an amazing man of grit, determination, and and doing that together was just made it fun. And to do it by yourself would have just worn you right down. So, you know, that that was tough, but we look back and got those photos and we'll we won't forget that um that achievement. Um and, and just we loved his company at, at lunch times. He'd travel down from just south of Dunedin and he'd have breakfast with us and sometimes we'd talk too long and sometimes we'd have another coffee or tea. And But that's actually what I loved. So, yeah, let's um, celebrate your wins, celebrate your achievements and because um, there's always more to achieve. Hamish, you've almost sort of nailed what I normally finish a podcast with. So what, I, what I'd like to do now is actually just create a little bit of space because I think it's really valuable. Um, just to finish on, what are your thoughts regarding the way that farmers are being portrayed by, let's say, the media around emissions and taxes and, you know, generally all around looking at farmers as, you know, uh, some kind of climate criminal? Oh, mate. Yeah, I'll try and keep it short and succinct because uh, we are, you know, getting towards the end. But I, I'm astounded at the 
the stupidity or, or the foolishness that is that has enveloped our globe, our society. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm living in a novel. One of them could be 1984, where, you know, the peddling of fear, of catastrophe, of humans are bad, livestock are bad, everything's bad. Um, and and I, I just look outside and, and, and I, don't, I, just, I just reject all that and see, you know, pastures, trees, livestock, integration, soils, people, you know, even let, let, let's all just admit that fossil fuels and the, the combustion engine have been an extraordinary invention, I guess you could say. I mean, it just blows my mind that we can get so much done on such uh, an explosive resource. And, um, and I am so for being more efficient with our resources. You know, I'm so for improving our planet. To, to me, this whole climate change mantra, to think that, that as an individual, I can change climate. As an individual, I can reduce pollution. As an individual, we can build topsoil. As an individual, we can use less fossil fuels for such big destructive policies that come in and then destroy poorer civilizations or poorer people or, you know, the, the same holistic management that we use on our farms should be used when running a country. Um, or, but that, that doesn't happen. We get in such silos, we get in such extraordinary reductionist thinking that end up with extraordinary unintended consequences. And I just think, um, I shake my head and think, where does it, where does it all end? And, and that's why it, it welled up within me to, to write about what's going on and, and push back because um, to tax animals is just, um, you know, beyond what you thought was ever possible. I guess the pollution situation we've got ourselves into has been over decades and it's going to take decades to change that and to, to have really good alternatives to travel or to, to fossil fuels and understanding that the guts of the problem is that we use way too much fossil fuel energy and that if we can harness solar energy um, and convert that into highly nutritious superfood, I'm talking about meat and milk and <laughs> stuff like that, um, which is a whole food which is, which is good for the human. We can improve our ecosystem. Like I say to people, we're solar farming, being sheep and beef, dairy. The fossil fuel side of that is, is our decision to how far we push those boundaries. Again, I've almost got sympathy just for our dairy farmers and conventionally run whatever. They are amazingly efficient, so I don't I don't judge them. You know our financial system, which is geared up with high land prices, high house prices, so you need to borrow more money. Our debt is higher. I read a stat the other day in two thousand and eight, the debt to GDP ratio was two hundred sixteen percent, so debt was two hundred sixteen percent more than GDP, the global GDP. Now it's two hundred fifty percent. 
So back after 2008, 2009, they made um, big efforts to reduce that ratio. It's actually increased. So for, for, for Amy and I, for instance, to even get into a farm, we need to borrow a huge amount of money. So you're trapped into a system which the bank wants you to return a certain amount. And so it's the system we're in that holds everybody ransom. And then people come in with these outrageous policies and ideas like car, uh, zero carbon and Ekanoa, and suddenly think that's going to fix the problem. It's like, wow, what world have I suddenly ended up in? So no, I, I strongly push back and challenge um, a lot of the rhetoric. It's ideology. We, we've seen uh, what happened through COVID, how much of what they said would happen didn't happen. You know, the, the science was far from settled. I just, <laughs> it blew me away at what we all sort of fell for. Um, and we keep falling for um, for big ideologies. And I think um, we, we have to really ask questions. Don't take what what government or what policymakers says is, is truth and to seek truth ourselves. We, I mean, at the end of the day, we are responsible only for ourselves. There is not enough responsibility taken for, for our own decisions. If we continue to seek truth um, and be, because we're all biased in some way or another, like to, for, for everyone to think that this world is non-biased and there's conflicts of interest everywhere, I think we are really, really comfortable with how we're farming and regardless of what messages or what accusations are against us, we've done enough research. Not, we're not 100%, but to, to know that we're on the right path. A discussion these days gets just chopped down at the knees um, and that creates dissent. It creates um, a, a distrust and, that, and that's what's happening big time with our with our um, industry bodies, government, so much of what's going on. And, and after all, through this, I think we're, we've learned a lot. We've learned to do our own research. And we've also learned to have a conviction too, to, with everything being fired at us to say, no, what we're doing, we're on the right path. And we are willing to, to listen and learn, but please let's keep the facts the facts. Um, one thing people accuse us of is not following the science on fertilizer. And, um, you know, we haven't put fertilizer on here for about four years. And I, I do not de deny that science that, you know, if you're lacking um, nutrients, then put it on and you grow more, more forage or more, more, more yield. I think it's more of a fact that can we, it's more of a future thing. Can we carry on doing what we're doing um, and go through that stage of the fertility, not well, the fertilizer going on really affecting our pasture production through the year? How much does it affect us? And can we manage our way through it where we still grow enough grass and still grow enough yield off this farm to be really profitable plus improve our ecosystem? So yeah, really um, complex situations globally, nationally. And yeah, I just uh, appreciate having people around us that, that are willing to to challenge the status quo. What a beautiful way to end a great conversation. Hamish Pawski, thank you so much for taking the time out today. I know you've got a lot going on and school holidays and, you know, you've got the kids. And look, I just acknowledge you for being bold enough to share your experiences, including, you know, those times where you 
didn't have things going the way that you expected. I think that's really valuable for our listeners. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Jono. Always great to yarn with you. We look forward to to what's ahead of us and blazing a trail. And obviously you'll learn from the past and learn, learn from those who've gone before us and build on that. And it's exciting stuff. So no, cheers, Jono. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.